0: Good morning church family, it is uh, good to see you this morning, glad you're here, Uh, if you're wondering who I am, uh, as Tara said, I am Chris and uh, Pastor Dustin and Stephanie are away, oh thank you, Um, are away uh, this weekend and so he asked me to step in and uh, it's my honor, it's my honor to do that this morning. Uh, of course, today is Palm Sunday, so you might have come in thinking, uh, expecting to see some uh, palm branches being waved or something, but uh, over the last several weeks, Pastor Dustin has been walking through the final week of Jesus, and uh, we actually talked about Palm Sunday a few weeks ago, and we, been, he's been leading up each day into what will, of course, be the resurrection next Sunday, and so today he's asked me to talk about <coughs> the cross, and so we will be doing that. We'll be talking a little bit about Uh, The Garden of Gethsemane uh, leading to the cross. Uh, But before we go any further this morning, I'd like us to just bow our heads in prayer. But uh, even before I do that, I I need to tell you, let you know as a church family, um, Robbie matler Stern. some of you know, uh, she's one of the greeters uh, here in the church. Uh, She lost her husband last night um, to cancer, and it was a shock to her and their family. So I want us to make sure you know that, and uh, we need to be praying for Robbie uh, for God's comfort in the midst of this time, and so let's bow in a word of prayer. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we are we're grateful for your presence with us today. Lord, we're grateful that you're here and you are with us. And you are the God of all comfort. And Lord, our hearts break this morning for Robbie and her family as they've experienced this loss. And Lord, uh, I thank you for your word that says in Psalm 34, 18, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. So Lord, would you just be near to her today? Would you just be near to that family today in ways that only you can do? Lord, I I pray that uh, as we dig into your word today and as we open it up and And look and see what it is you'd have to say to us today. Lord, that our spirits, our hearts, our motivations, our wills would be yielded to you. To do what you, by your Holy Spirit, uh, can do in us. And so we surrender that to you. Lord, we ask that you would speak uh, and uh, that we would listen. Lord, I pray that you would set me aside, that our eyes would be fixed and focused on Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Um, this morning, I uh, this morning, I, I. Uh, we're going to be talking. We're going to be out in Matthew chapter twenty six. So if you want to prepare yourselves, you can go there. Uh, I have a dog named JJ. JJ is a Labrador Retriever. He's seven years old. He's a good boy, and uh, he's my buddy. Um, and and there's two things that JJ absolutely loves. JJ loves to loves attention. That's number one. I mean, he's addicted to love. He just he just wants to be loved, uh, and he'll do whatever he needs to do to get your attention and to uh, to get you to pet him and to love him. But the other thing he absolutely loves, he 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 doesn't mind other dogs and all that, but he doesn't really care that much about other. He just wants to fetch. He wants to go get something. He wants to either get a ball or a frisbee. If I don't have one, he'll find one and he'll bring it to me. He just wants to fetch. He loves to do that. But sometimes when I'm uh, playing and I'm throwing the ball or I'm throwing the frisbee for JJ, he... uh, He's, he, he gets to points where he thinks maybe I'm going to stop or maybe I'm going to go in the house or I'm not going to play anymore, so then he won't give me the thing that I'm trying to throw him. He'll just hang on to it so I can't do the very thing that I'm supposed to be doing. I have a little video, really quick, short little video. I want you to watch this. In the first part, you'll see JJ going after the Frisbee. In the second part, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, go ahead and roll that video, Donald. There's my buddy in my backyard. Good catch, buddy. He comes, he drops it, but then the next time, he just wouldn't give it up. And every time he does that, because he does that sometimes, and every time he does that, I get this thought in my mind, I think, how much are we like that? That, see, J.J., he's a Labrador retriever. He's not a Labrador possessor, right? He was born... To retrieve things, he was born to go get things. Uh, that's 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 his purpose, and that's what he loves, absolutely loves to do. But sometimes, if he thinks that I'm not going to give that thing back, or if I'm going to stop, I'm not going to do the thing he wants to do, then he will just hold on to that thing. He will just he will just he, and he won't let it go. And when he holds on to that thing, he's not he's not able to do the very thing that he loves to do. But because he doesn't trust that I'm going to do the thing he wants to do in the time he wants to do it, he'll just hold on to it and he won't let it go. And so he can't actually fulfill his purpose. I think, how often am I like that? How often can we be like that? That the very thing that God created us to do, the the very purpose for which he designed us, that sometimes we get so possessive and we don't trust our Father that he's going to do what he wants to do uh, in us and through us. And so we hold on to our things. We hold on to those things we love. Though we, hold, we think, oh, if, if I give it up, maybe I won't get to do what I want to do. And, and, and in doing so, we aren't able to actually fulfill the very purpose that we're designed to fulfill. I think about that. I, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, at the very beginning of, of the story of creation, there's this beautiful cosmic 30,000 foot level view of of creation. And God creates the moon and the stars and the land and the sea and the vegetation. He puts all the animals on there. And then at the pinnacle of his creation on the sixth day, he creates humanity. He, he, He creates Adam and Eve and and at the end of it, he, and he says, I, I, I'm going to create them in my image. Male and female, he created them. And he creates them in his image. And the purpose is that, that they would cause everything to flourish. They would, that, that man would cause others to flourish. And we would cause this earth to flourish. And we would be fruitful and we would multiply. And this is this beautiful picture. And at the end of it, he says, this is very good. This is so good. These people that I've created, they're so good. And then in chapter 2, it's as though he zooms in from this 30,000-foot level down in, and, and you see God in that chapter 2 of Genesis in the dirt and he's, he, he's forming man out of the dust of the ground and he's breathing life into his nostrils and creating the, the woman there to, to be a partner with him as well. And, and, and in all of it, he says, this is very good that the purpose that they were created for was to partner with God to continue the work that he had begun in this beautiful creation to help one another flourish, to help everything flourish. But then, of course, we come to Genesis chapter 3, and things take a turn for the worse. God says, you can have anything you want. You can have it all. I've created all this for you, and it's going to be beautiful, and, and you're in partnership with me, and you're communion with me, except you can't have this one thing. You can't have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just, that's the only one you can't have. And, of course, what Adam and Eve do, well, that's the one we want, though. And so they they take of that, and in so doing, they break their relationship with God. They violate that relationship, and sin enters the picture. And then there's, out of that is an avalanche of consequence that comes from that. The consequences of pain and injustice and alienation and separation and shame and ultimately, of course, death. But up until that point, death wasn't in God's plan. That wasn't supposed to be a part of the picture. But death comes into the plan as a consequence of the sin, the violation of relationship between humanity and God. But God's original intention was in Genesis 1 that we would be in perfect partnership, that we'd be walking alongside of Him doing what He designed us, the very thing He designed us to do. And He called that good. He he called us good initially and... And too often, I think, what happens uh, among us and, and sometimes in the churches, we too often see things and see the world and see people. We start from Genesis 3 rather than starting from Genesis 1. We see things from a Genesis 3 perspective rather than from a Genesis 1 perspective. And we start getting a little jaded and just a cursory look at the news or what's happening in our world. We can see this world is very broken. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of... There's a lot of uh, uh, evil and wickedness—we know all of that—but we don't start from a Genesis three perspective. Yes, sin enter, entered the picture, and yes, it, our world is very broken. We should start as followers of Christ from a Genesis one perspective—that God's original intention was that He created us inherently good. He looked at us and He said, "These these people, this creation is good." And and the entire trajectory of Scripture from that point on is to bring us back to God's original intent and to bring us back into the purposes for which He created us. And what if our job is to discover and bring out the good rather than calling out the bad? What What if we could see that our job is to, when we look at people, when we look at situations, that God's design, God's desire for each person is that's a person who's created in the image of God. No matter how much I don't like what's happening, no matter how much I disagree with them, that person is created in the image of God and God's whole purpose is to bring them back into the original intent for which he created them. What if we could see that our job is to discover and bring out the good and to see, and see them through the lens that God sees us rather than calling out the bad. So the story continues, of course, all through the Old Testament and we see the difficulty in God working with his people and onto the scene comes Jesus fully god but in the form of man god incarnate god in human form to show us here is what life can look like here is what it can mean to live as a human as a, to live as a person in partnership with god here's how here's what it can look like to live in as an agent of god's kingdom but living within a broken world it can't this is what it can look like he, but he comes into this broken world and he absorbs all of the uh, consequences of our sin, all the injustice, all the pain, all the humiliation, all the separation and alienation—all of it—he absorbs it into himself. Ultimately, of course, in his death. We come to the to the Garden of Gethsemane. Last week, Pastor Dustin gave an excellent message about the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, where he's with his disciples, and and uh, he talked about the meaning of that and and how. Even today, we remember that every time we take communion together. But we come, Jesus leaves from there, and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows his time is short. He wants to pray with his disciples. And we pick it up in Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to read verses 36 through 46. And it says this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus here in all of his humanity is overwhelmed with sorrow. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell. With his face to the ground, you see the desperation now in Jesus as he falls with his face to the ground and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, but not as I will, but as you will. When he talks about the cup, of course, he has just, he has just been with his disciples And he has just talked to them about the bread and the cup. He says, "This bread is the body; is my body broken for you? Do this in remembrance of me." And he says, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, uh, eat this bread and drink this cup, you do this in remembrance of me." And that cup is the reminder of of the suffering of Jesus, giving of his blood. The sacrifice that Jesus made for us. A cup in Scripture is often talking about our destiny or our fate. There are times in, in Scripture where the cup is speaking about blessing. For example, in Psalm 23 when he says, My cup runs over and my cup overflows. That's talking about the cup that's a cup of blessing for the psalmist. But, but more often in, in Scripture, the cup is talking about wrath. It's talking about judgment. It's talking about suffering. So when it's talking about the cup, when Jesus says... May this cup be taken from me. He's saying, God, is there some other way besides suffering? Is there some other way besides this judgment that I am going to endure? And Jesus says, if it is possible, if it is possible. Now, we know that Jesus has said to his disciples uh, sometime before this that he says, with men, this is impossible, but with God, what? All things are possible. We sang it this morning. Nothing is impossible. So he says to to his father, he says, God, if it is possible, now we know and he knows everything is possible with God. But he says, if it is possible, take this cup from me. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. See, there's a tension between what God is able to do and between what God is willing to do. And we live sometimes as people of faith in that tension. And sometimes we don't understand why he is not doing what we know he is able to do. And we have to trust that when we know he is able, but he is not willing, we won't understand why he's not willing, why there are some times where he will do something in one situation and he will work miraculously in this situation, but he doesn't work miraculously in this other situation or in, or in my situation. And in those times, there's this tension we wrestle with, and Jesus is wrestling with this tension of God as if it is possible, take this cup from me. And I can just tell you from personal experience, some of you probably don't know that I lost my wife a little less than two months ago to a, a battle with cancer. And, and we prayed and we prayed and hundreds of people prayed and many of you prayed that God would take this cup from her, that God would rescue her out of that and believing that he would and we know he is able. But there's that tension between what God is able to do and what God does do and sometimes we don't understand why and when we don't understand the why, we have to go back to who God is. That God, even if we don't understand, that God is always trustworthy. That God is always good. And I got lots of questions. But God is still good. And God is still trustworthy. You see, Jesus in his humanity, he didn't want to die. He wanted some other way. It goes on, it says, Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And when he said the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, I don't think he's talking about some conceptual theoretical uh, uh, truth here. He, he's just come out of a prayer when he said, God, if it is possible, take this cup from me. That his, but then he says, but not as I will, but as you will. He was willing to do what God, the spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. He didn't want to have to go through this. Verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it. Now, notice the change in the prayer here. First prayer, he says, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Here he says, if it is not possible, unless I drink it. If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it. You see, the only way that the cup of judgment, the cup of wrath, the cup of suffering could be removed is if Jesus drank it. That's the only way it was going to happen. Jesus is the only one who could absorb and take on that suffering, that pain, that judgment in order for us to be set free. And so he says, if, 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 if it is not possible unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping. Because their eyes were heavy. I think I always think that's a funny scripture. He found them sleeping because their eyes were. There were many times when I would be in an argument with my wife late at night, and we're in bed and we're having this serious conversation. An argument. And she's she's just, you know, she's wanting to have this conversation, but but I would sometimes fall asleep. And she would say, How can you fall asleep in the middle of this serious conversation? And I'd say, well, because I'm really tired, because <laughs> my eyes are heavy. Just if you really cared, you know, it's that whole thing. You get it. You you get it. I see you. Some of you looking at each other like um, they, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, "Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise." Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. You see, in Jesus' case, in this case with Jesus, there was no other way. He came to pay our price, and God was going to do what had to be done to restore us back to His original intention for us that we could live, that we could be restored back to the good image that He created us to live in, back into relationship with Him. I think it's amazing that the mission of God to restore us outweighed the request of, his, of Jesus, his son, to be spared. Think about that. The mission of God to restore you and I back to what he intended for us outweighed the request of his son to be spared. I don't know that I could do that. But God did that because he loves us. Because God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish would have everlasting life. And then equally amazing is Jesus' submission to God was greater than his personal human desires. That that in his humanity, he didn't want to have to suffer. He didn't want to have to go through this. But his submission to God, his willingness to say, God, I surrender my will to your will. I I don't want to have to do this, God. I don't want to have to go through this. But I trust you, and I will surrender to your plan. It was greater than his personal human desire. See, Jesus didn't want to die. He didn't want to have to take that pain, that persecution, that humiliation, that separation. He didn't want to have to take that death. But in, and in his humanity, Jesus valued his life. His life was important to him. His incarnation, his life was important. It, it, it just You see, Jesus coming to this earth wasn't just that he would get us someday to heaven. That, that's not all it was about. This was about the redemption of this life, of our purpose, of our meaning, of the goodness that God designed us for to live in this life that we're living right now. But he was willing to lay down his life out of obedience to the Father and out of his deep love for you and I. The story goes on in Matthew 26, and it says, While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs. Sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Isn't it fascinating? That we all know Jesus as the most central figure in all of human history. You know, we all know how important he is. And, 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 and you know, much of the world down through history, of course, has known that. But at that day, while he had a following, he wasn't a celebrity. He wasn't so well-known that everybody could look at Jesus and say, oh, that's Jesus. In fact, he had to be identified by a kiss for the soldiers to know who it was that they had to arrest. Goes on, says, going at once to Jesus, Judah said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. How hard was it, would it have been to call him friend in that moment? Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions, now we know from the book of John, chapter 18, this was Peter. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think, listen to this verse. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So just get this scene in your head. So Jesus has just prayed, he's just prayed this desperate prayers to God saying, God, if there's any other way, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. And now these these people come with swords and clubs and they're gonna arrest him. And Peter, in his in all of his you know, spontaneous uh, energy and enthusiasm, brings out his sword, cuts off the ear of the soldier, and, and Jesus says, put that sword away. Don't you think I could call, and God had said 12 legions of angels? Now, I think the reason he said that is because perhaps when he was praying to the Father, he, he was praying, God, is there a way, maybe, God, you could send maybe 12 legions of angels, and we could do it that way? Maybe we could do it somehow by force, but not my will, God, but yours be done. And Jesus had his answer from the Father, and he says here to Peter, listen, there's not another way to do this. See, God did call on his Father. Did, did God? Uh, I mean, Jesus did call on his Father and asked him for another way, but what he's saying here is he, he wouldn't do it his own way. He wouldn't do it with swords. He wasn't going to do it with force. He wasn't going to call down supernatural judgment or with political power. He was completely surrendered to God's plan. It goes on and says, In that hour Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then listen to this last line, Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. All the disciples deserted him and fled. Was Peter, though enthusiastic, was misguided. Peter was willing to take up his sword, but he wasn't willing to take up his cross. Peter was willing to take up his sword. We're going to do it my way. But he wasn't willing to take up his cross. In this moment, Peter and the rest of the disciples wanted to do it their own way. They wanted a political revolution. They wanted to use force to gain an advantage. They wanted Jesus to stand up to this unjust treatment. Jesus, stand up to this. This isn't right. Why aren't you standing against this? And then when Jesus didn't do it the way they wanted him to do it, when Jesus didn't respond in the timing and in the way that they wanted him to do it, it didn't go the way they thought it should go. They all deserted him. Now, of course, thank the Lord. God ultimately restores Peter. Jesus restores Peter. And Peter becomes one of the, one of the great, great disciples and missionaries. And, um, and the power of the Holy Spirit works through him. But in this particular time, Peter's willing to take up his sword, but he wasn't willing to take up his cross. So Jesus is arrested. The bogus trial begins. And Peter denies knowing him. He he literally swears that he doesn't know him, and he does this three times because admitting it may cost him his life. In Matthew chapter twenty-seven, we see the trial of of Jesus continuing, and and uh, he is then beaten. He's 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 tried. Um, The crowd says, "You know, give us Barabbas." Jesus is is then beaten. He's humiliated. crown of thorns placed on his head. He carries his own cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And he is brutally nailed to the cross. Um, the hu- most humiliating form of death. And he's, he's nailed to that cross and the cross is lifted up on that hill. And in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 to 50, it says this, From noon until three in the afternoon... Darkness came over all the land, and about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani," which means, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" This this passage, this this statement, he's quoting actually David out of, and you can see it in Psalm twenty two, where David says these exact words where David was feeling a time where he thought maybe God had abandoned him in his time of need. And Jesus is quoting the same emotion that, that King David was, had, had shared. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 47, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. See, they didn't understand what was happening. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. The sinless, perfect son of God, in human form, took our sin, took our punishment, took our shame, took our humiliation. He took our death. This was the great exchange, that he took our sin, that we could become righteous, that he took our death so that we could have life. The Lord made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, the life, the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus, God in human form, reminds us that this life matters that this life that God created you and I for, it matters. It's important. It isn't just about God saves us so someday we can go to heaven. No, He saves us so that we can have the kind of life He originally created us for, that He intended for us to live, and Jesus showed us what that kind of life could be. This life matters. We were created here, right, in this place. We were created for this place. We weren't created as disembodied spirits. We were created right here on earth for this place, and this life is important, and the incarnation of Jesus shows us, reminds us that this life matters. And yes, it was broken by sin, which brought the consequence of death, but the whole trajectory of Scripture is to bring us back to our good purpose of being in partnership with God. God wants your life to mean something to matter. He's called you good and He wants to bring you back to that good place. And at the cross, Jesus absorbed all of the consequences of our sin and He offered us that restored life again. It was only through that cup, only through that suffering of Jesus, only through the sinless, perfect Son of God, the Lamb of God, that that life could be restored. Back to the good image He intended. So here's the amazing thing. that If we accept Jesus Christ and if we are followers of Christ and we accept the sacrifice he's made on our behalf and he's the Lord and Savior of our life, that when God looks at you and I, he doesn't look at you and I and say, oh, that person is evil or that person is sinful or that person is wicked. No, he looks at you and I through the lens of the blood of Jesus. He looks at you and I through the sacrifice of his son and he looks at us and he says, that person is good. That person is righteous. That person is, is, is mine, that's my son, that's my daughter. It's, it's incredible. We are, because of Jesus, we can be restored. And the cross reminds us that death was never God's intention. Death was never God's intention. People have asked me since Lisa passed, Chris, are you angry at God? And I understand that question. Um, I don't understand. There's a lot of things I don't understand. (laughs) There's a lot of questions I have. But they ask me, are you angry? And my my answer is no. I'm not angry at God. I have questions for God. I wish he would have healed her. I don't know. I, I thought we had 30 more years together and... So, I don't know why that happened at this particular time. Um, but I'm not angry at God. Because death was not God's plan for Lisa. That sickness to cancer. That's, God, didn't give God, God didn't give Lisa cancer. That was never God's plan. This is a result of a broken world that we are in. The consequences of, of sin in this world. But that was never God's plan. And, and in fact, Lisa said, even in her last several months, she said, I want my life to count. I want it to mean something. I want it to count for something because this life matters. And so all through even the final months of her life, she was encouraging people and she was sharing with people and she was telling people to trust God and she was helping them to see that God had good purpose in their life because she wanted her life to count for something. She wanted her life to matter. And death was never... God's intention for her. Yes, we live in a broken world and where there is sin and where there is death, but the, the, but the reality of the, of, the, of the death of Christ is because he takes on our sin, because he took on our penalty, we don't have, to, death doesn't have the final word. Death doesn't have the final word. While, we, while this life matters and while we all will eventually pass, that we will live again. That that, that this this isn't the end, and it's because of the cross of Jesus Christ. That he paid that price for our sin. That death doesn't have the last word. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, it says this. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Take up their cross. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Jesus, we know, went to the cross and paid the sacrifice for our sin and took the penalty for us so that we could live forever and so that we could have life on this, on this earth and, uh, that had meaning and that had purpose. But he says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily. And I think we need to ask, we need to decide, we must decide if we will take up our sword or if we will take up our cross. Will you take up your sword or will you take up your cross? The path to the life God designs us for comes through the cross. What does it mean to take up our sword when I say take up our sword, when we think about what Peter did. He just wanted to do it his way. He wanted it some other way, some other way than God's plan, some other way than the way Jesus had been preparing them for that whole time. He wanted to do it his way, some different way, a way that was more satisfying to them and went, what does it mean to take up our sword? I'm going to do it my way. I want to do it in my timing. Uh, I, I, nobody, including God, is going to tell me what to do. I'm in charge I'm going to make it happen on my own, in my own strength. I want to define good and evil for myself. I don't want anybody else, including God, to define that for me. I get to define that. That's what it means to take up my sword. I'm going to do it my own way. I want to do it my own time. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. What does it mean to take up our cross? What does it mean to take up our cross? It means that in everything, Everything we do, Christ is our primary affection and we surrender our lives to Him. In our workplace, in our homes, in your marriage, in your family, in every circumstance you encounter, in the words that you say, in the thoughts that you think, in the motivations of your in your will, in everything, that Christ is your primary affection and your life is surrendered to Him. In every decision you're gonna make, you're gonna say, God, I surrender this decision to you. In every frustrating situation you find yourself in, you say, God, I surrender this situation to you. That when you encounter very difficult days and dark days and hard days and sad days, that you still say, God, my life belongs to you. And I will follow you with all of my heart because I trust you, my Father. And I'm not going to hold on to this frisbee and do it my own way. But I'm going to surrender it to you because I trust that you're you're my Father. You're my good Father. You're going to allow me to fulfill the purpose for which you designed me. It means that when we have those those difficult circumstances and those dark days, that even when we don't understand what's happening, we're going to live in sort of a defiant joy. That when we could easily be swallowed up in the sadness and the darkness, we're going to walk in the joy that God is with me. That when we are worried and anxious and we don't understand, you know, how this is going to all work out in a situation we face in our life, that we're going to live in a defiant peace knowing that God is in control that when we encounter people who we don't like and we don't understand and they don't live in ways that we like and and they just bug us and they just drive us crazy, we're going to live in a defiant love and we're going to love those people anyway because we see that those are people created in the image of God. And and, And God wants us to help pull the... The, the original created image out of that person rather than just seeing the bad. I'm going to live in a defiant love and I'm going to lay my life down for that person because that's what Jesus did for me. That's what it means to take up our cross. That I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus in every aspect of my life. Will you live by the sword? Will you take up your sword or will you take up your cross? Let's Let's bow together. I'm going to ask Clinton, Jen, Jan to come on up. Lord, I uh, I just pray for every person in this room who is, uh, Lord, you've you've created each one for your purpose. Lord, you've created each one in your image, and you've looked at that. You created them. You said, "Ah, oh, that's good." And Lord, we know that we all are distorted by sin, and that image gets distorted by by our unwillingness to surrender to you and and our desire to just do our own thing. But God, I pray we'd come back to you and we would say, God, even though I don't understand, even when it doesn't add up in my own head, I'm going to trust you with my life. I'm going to surrender to you, God. I'm going to take up my cross daily and I'm going to follow you, God. I don't want to live in my own way and my own terms trying to do this by my own strength, anymore because I want to walk in the good purposes for which you've designed me. So Lord, if there's anybody in this room who has been living by the sword, who has been taking up their sword, but they've been unwilling to take up the cross, I pray today we would lay our swords down. We would take up our cross daily, that you would be our primary affection, and that we would surrender that to you and trust, God, that you will lead us in your everlasting way. Lord, I thank you today that Jesus took on all of our sin and all of the punishment for that sin, all the consequences of that sin in himself when he died on that cross. Lord, that we could have life. Lord, life today that matters and life forever in you. And I thank you for the hope of that. Lord, if there's somebody in this room, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know that hope, isn't confident that they can walk in that hope, God, I pray that today would be a day they lay down their sword and they take up their cross and they follow you. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.